How's everybody doing? Awesome, awesome. What an awesome time of worship. Thank you for being here on a Wednesday night. Each service, I just stand in awe. Literally Sunday, I put this on social media. I, I just had to walk out Sunday or I was going to lose it in front of the whole church. I just stood over there and began to reminisce and think about God's goodness and how this thing started with 13 of us in our living room. And look what God is doing now. And it just got overwhelming. I thought, you know, 83% of pastors' children leave the church by age 21. And my children, and one of them is pastoring the church, and all the rest of them are serving in it. And I'm a blessed man. And it got overwhelming for a little bit. But uh, God is doing so many things. I mean, what an awesome day Sunday it is. The baptism, every time we have baptism is like crazy good. But to see a whole family get baptized, is that not awesome or what? And uh, just so excited to see what God is doing. I just want to encourage you as Pastor Brad's away to be praying for all of our pastors and our leadership. And we're in an amazing season of God's favor and blessing on the house. And I just want to challenge you as we're in this imagine. And Pastor Brad didn't ask me to say this. It's all coming from me. But I want to challenge every one of you. Put your thumbprint on this somewhere. You know, it may be $5 a month, it may be $5,000 a month. I'm just saying, and I'm not up here asking for your money, I'm saying connect with the vision of the house and you open up the door for the favor of the house on your house. And here's an example. My father, we grew up poor. I mean, our chickens leaned up against the barn. You're poor when your chickens are on the barn. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, I mean, we didn't have air conditioning in central Florida growing up. My air conditioning was I'd take a towel and wet it with cold water and put it in the refrigerator and squeeze it out and then lay it on me at night with a fan. That was called AC in my house. We didn't grow up with a lot of money, but my dad was a hardworking man, and I'll never forget that uh, my dad, and I grew up in the Assembly of God Church, and every year they would renew their mission vet pledges for the missionaries, and, and my dad didn't make a lot of money, but there was two missionaries, and my dad gave $100 a month, which was like $1,000 a month in that household. And he did it every month for years. And then in, I remember getting a phone call. I was in the sixth grade. And they called me and they got me out of school. My dad had been in an accident at work. He was almost decapitated, a machine. He got caught in the machine. The blade cut his ear off and was going through his neck when they shut the whole company down. And they had to take the machine apart, get the blade out of my dad's neck, took him to the hospital. And I'll never forget getting that phone call. And uh, from that, my dad worked for this guy for uh, over 20 years. And uh, years went by, and they found out there was a tumor from that injury that went to my dad's brain. He had a tumor on the brain. Kathy and I had just got to the Bronx, New York, and my dad found out he had to have massive brain surgery. And uh, I'll never forget my dad calling me, and once he had the brain surgery, he came out of the surgery, and the guy he had worked for for over 20 years handed him a pink slip and said, we don't need you anymore. He's 58 years old, just had massive brain surgery, and his dream was to build my mom a little house. And he built mom a 1,300-square-foot block house that was not anything eloquent or anything like that, but it was a home that he provided for my mom. He was so proud of that house. And I'll never forget, in the Bronx, New York, I received a phone call from my dad. It was the only time I've ever heard my dad cry in my life outside of it being in the altar in the presence of God. My dad was crying. He said, Dan, mama's going to lose her house. Mama's going to lose her house. But I remember when my dad had that accident that we were in church and that year they took up the pledges and my dad was still not able to work. And so he had no income coming because he did something wrong and they told him if you allow on this report, you can, you can get unemployment. And my dad said, no, I won't lie. I remember sitting in the room 
when he told the insurance, I will not lie, I was in wrong. And because of that, my dad went nine months without a check. On a Sunday morning, I remember sitting there when they took the renewed the pledges for the missionaries. My dad raised his hand to renew both $100 a month pledges, and he didn't have any income coming in. I remember my mom sitting there about to have a cow. Like, we're, we don't even know how we're going to pay rent or, or mortgage. How we, you know, and then all this goes now, and we're in the Bronx, New York. But you know what? They got that mission pledge every month, and the bills got paid every month. Now Kathy and I are married. Years have gone by. My dad had to have massive brain surgery, and he called me, and he's crying. He said, Dan, Mom's going to lose her house. And I'll never forget. It was a reaction. I grabbed the Bible that Brad has now. It's a Bible I preached out of for 38 years. It's on his desk. And I picked it up, and I said, Dad, if you lose that house, I will never preach out of this book again because it's a lie. I'll never read it again. I'll never. It was a reaction because I watched my dad walk by faith. I watched him serve God like anybody, no one I've ever met. My dad was, there was Jesus and my dad. And I said, if it don't work for you, then I'm not preaching it to anybody else. We didn't know, but the word got out because my dad would always bring home homeless people. And when people got in drugs and stuff, they lived in our house. I remember Sandra Stanford shooting holes in our ceilings high on drugs. And I, and, and I can name some other names I won't now because we're, we could be live, but many people lived in our house for six months, nine months. One of them, Rocky Phillips, he was on drugs and he lived in our house for nine months. He was in Germany in, a, in, in, the, in the military as a, a major part of the military. Anyway, these people found out about my mom and dad's situation, and that Christmas they paid my mom and dad's house off because they put their thumbprint. Are you hearing what I'm saying? They put their thumbprint on something God said to do in the kingdom, and I took the time to say that story because I want to challenge some of you that are going, I can't do anything. Yes, you can. And it's not about us getting your money because God's going to give us what we need. We're going to build that. We're going to enlarge the house because we've got to have room. So I'm not saying this like we need your money so we can do this. God's got that. I'm not even, inter- I'm not even concerned about that. I've already told Pastor Justin that I'm not worried about it at all. I believe God's going to bring away more than $1.2 million. So I'm not saying that. I want your family to have the favor that's on the house. And to do that, you got to connect to the vision of the house. And so I want to challenge every one of you. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm saying pray and let God share with you what to do. But every one of us put our thumbprint on this imagined thing and say, I'm going to be a part of something far bigger than me that's going to transform and change the lives of people for generations to come. Amen? Amen. All right. So anyway, we're in Romans chapter, uh, or Romans, Pastor Brad opened it up last month in Romans chapter 1. And just going scripture by scripture, going through different passages in each one, and that's what we're going to do tonight. And then I, I want to go ahead and just let you know, don't leave right at the end, because last Wednesday, I, as you know, I have a home renovation company, and I was up on a second floor doing some painting, and the Holy Spirit just really came to me and spoke to me. I, I sat down on the roof, and the Holy Spirit really spoke to me and said, tonight was going to be a night of encounter and release for some of you that there's going to be a time, we're going to take time at the end of this service to have some time alone with God for a few minutes, and we're going to pray for some of you that want prayer. But I, I believe there's going to be an encounter and a release in some of your hearts here tonight in Jesus' name. How many believe that? Amen. And so Pastor Brad opened up with chapter 1. In chapter 1, God deals with God's judgment against unrighteousness. 
And Pastor Brad brought a teaching on that. And then we're going to go to chapter 2 tonight. We're going to go right through the scriptures in chapter 2. It's not a long chapter. But it's really unique because in chapter 1, God dealt with the, the judgment of unrighteousness. But in chapter 2, he talks about being the righteous judge. I'm just glad that when you get stand and you are in judgment, it's not by some man or a group of people. But I'm just glad Jesus is the judge. And he's a righteous judge. And so let's go to Romans chapter 2 very quickly. And we're going to start reading there. It says, therefore, he's talking to the Jews now, okay? Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and you doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance to your handness and your impenitent, impenitent, Heart, and that means to, to um, no shame, no regret. A heart that has no shame, no regret in it. He says, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who patient, continue in doing good, seek for glory, honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many have sinned without the law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although having the law, are a law to themselves." who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and being themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. So we see Romans chapter 2, we're going to stop there for a moment, is divided into three sections. The first section is God's dealing with the hypocrisy of the Jews. And that part we just read, and we're going to get into that for a moment. That's in verses 1 through 16. Then verse 17 through 24, he deals with the religious pride and arrogance of the Jews. And then he goes from 25 to 29, he talks about how their ordinances is not going to bring salvation into their lives. And we're going to bring those into where we live today and how this impacts us. You see, when God brought this to the Jewish people, he was having to come and really get into their face because the Jewish people had this pride, this arrogance that they, they thought themselves as holy people. They considered themselves entitled, that they were privileged by right. 
And yet they were unthankful, rebellious, and lived unrighteous. They, they did not walk the walk that they declared that everyone else was to walk. They felt like because I'm a Jew, I can do whatever I want to do. And they expected and demanded of the Gentiles who had never heard the law to live it even better than they did that had the law. Sounds like religion to me. And I, I love what Matthew Henry says about this. He said, in every willful sin... There is contempt of the goodness of God. Man, that's, that's Facebook worthy right there. In every willful sin, anybody besides me sin willfully sometime? The rest of you just did. <laughs> In every willful sin, there is a contempt, a contempt of the goodness of God. And though the branches of man's disobedience are very various, they all spring from the same root. But in true repentance, there must be hatred of former sinfulness from a change wrought in the state of the mind, which disposes it to choose the good and refuse the evil. It shows also the sense of inward wretchedness, such as great change wrought in repentance. It is conversion. It is needed in every human being. The ruin of sinners is their walking after a hard and impotent heart, a heart with no shame, no regret. The ruin of sinners is that they walk with a heart that can walk in willful sin and disobedience to God and have no shame and no regret for it. Listen, folks, the worst and most dangerous place we can ever find ourselves is when we are knowing doing wrong and there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit that we feel. We, we don't feel that. There's no regret. There's no shame. There's more, no more dangerous place than we can be that, than where the Jews were at this time, that they were looking at the Gentiles and being very quick to tell them how they're supposed to walk in obedience to the law when they didn't even have the law. All they had was a conscience. And yet the Jewish people weren't even living by a conscience, much less the law. And so he comes in and he continues on. And he says that the ruin of sinners is they're walking after a hard and impotent heart. Their sinful doings are exposed by the strong words, listen, treasuring up wrath. Now that's strong. Now if, you were in, if you're in pipeline and you're doing an inductive study, there it is. You're treasuring up. Listen to what he says here. By knowing that you're sinning and you have no regret, you have no shame, he says you're treasuring up wrath. Just like anybody have a savings account, you're, you're putting away and you're putting away and you're putting away and you're putting away and you're putting away so that one day you can have this money there in an emergency fund or a vacation, whatever. God used that treasuring up in a sense that they could grab hold of it that what you're literally doing is you're building a bank account that's filled with the wrath of God. The scripture says later on, because judgment is not brought against an evil work Quickly, therefore, the sons of men have set in their hearts to do evil. Because God didn't come down with a hammer and strike us down or knock us down when we sin, knowingly sin. Well, nothing happened. I guess God's okay with that. Well, I didn't fall dead. I guess it's okay. 
we're storing up treasures of wrath. We're not getting away. We're not getting by. God was telling the Jewish people, Paul, through the apostle Paul, he's warning them, "You're, you're not getting by. You're storing up like an account of the wrath of God that one day is all going to come on you at one time. It's going to be overwhelming. Listen, folks, we got to live every day. We got to know what we're depositing and where we're depositing it. Thank God for His mercy. Come on. Thank God for His grace. Anybody with me? Thank God that He's patient. Thank God He's long suffering. Thank God that He's there as a Father watching over us. But don't think we're getting away or we're getting by. We're not. We're storing up into an account. Because we don't have shame. We have no regret. It's enjoyable. It's my pleasure. I know it goes against Scripture. I know it's not healthy for me, but it's, it's just some things that I have a habit of doing, and I enjoy it. And God hasn't got me dead. I'm still alive. I haven't lost anything over it. It just hasn't happened yet. But you're storing up to an account of wrath. No shame, no regret. And then they go in. So God's warned the Jews. He's telling them, you're you're demanding of someone else what you're not even doing yourself. Sounds like the church to me. That we, we have welcome and come as you are until they do. And I'm talking about the church as a general, okay, not here. We we all right on that one. Now we got some areas. But that woman, I think we got an A-plus on. But isn't it amazing? As good of an illustration as I know, I was pastoring a different church. We were having church, man. We had acquired that church that could rock heaven. And I love them old, you know, them apostolic choirs. They'll move you. If you're dead, they'll move you. <laughs> well, we had one. Alvin Miranda was our worship leader. He's Puerto Rican, and that's enough to know right there. You're going to move, all right? And we were in worship, man, and worship was just moving, place was rocking, and this alcoholic come in. Now, alcoholics, when they come into your church service, they always sit on the front row. It's just something about that front row. So he brought his bottle of liquor with him. He sat on the front row. We're rocking, we're moving, church having church, and he got right in there with us. He didn't know the song, but he knew the music, all right? He's moving, alcohol slinging out of his bottle. We're having church, choirs going, people are jumping, dancing, singing, alcohol right in the middle of it. He's going. And then all of a sudden, I saw some of my leaders. They're like watching him. People are starting to get close by. One of them sent me a note because I was letting him go. Let him go. He's here. We've been praying for him to come. Come as you are. Well, he's an alcoholic. He came as he is. Brought his liquor with him. He's having a blast. And one of them come up on the stage and said, Pastor, he's got alcohol in the house of God. I said, I know. Kept on worshiping. Come back, Pastor. He's slinging alcohol all over the carpet. I know. Kept on worshiping. He come back. He said, Pastor, you want us to take that alcohol from him? I said, you touch his alcohol, you're a thief. You didn't pay for it, he did. I said, leave the man alone. I said, y'all been bringing hatred, Gossip, envy, strife, jealousy, racism, bigotry. You've been bringing all that stuff in this house Sunday after Sunday. Ain't nobody said nothing. 
Leave the man his alcohol alone. At least we know what he is. God's still trying to figure us out. That's what Paul was dealing with. But think about a church full of folk like that. Didn't want to know why God can't show up and do nothing. Paul said, you got to change some things, Jewish people. you got to change some things. And it wasn't, he wasn't attacking their, their nationality. He was attacking their attitude. He wasn't attacking where they come from or who they were. He was attacking their mindset that I'm better than anybody else, that I don't need to do anything to be right. I'm right because God says I'm a Jew, and I'm the apple of his eye. Not if you're dirty or not. And so then they come in, and he has to address the issue where they start attacking the, the Gentiles and going, well, you've got to live by the law, or you're going to be judged. And God comes in, and he says, you're not even living by the law. And you know it. They don't even have it. They don't know John 3.16. They, they don't know the law. They've never had the law given to them. And yet you want to judge them by law that you're not living and they don't even have. Sounds like a story called the woman at the well. Remember that one? Jesus is there with a woman and he begins to tell her her life story and he begins to just express to her, you, you know, you've been with this many men and the man that you're with now is not your husband. And he begins to just tell her story and he begins to speak life to her and then these same religious folks showed up. And you know what they told Jesus? The law. They said the law says stone her. Rather than use the law to bring life, they want to use the law to bring death. But that's not what the law came for. They said, put her to death. The law says, you have to put her to death. But Jesus is a, uh, was a God of wisdom. And he couldn't violate his own word. He couldn't change it. So, you know, you know the story. He just got down, and everybody has, I love Chris Hodges' explanation. He just said, I think he got down in the sand and went, Mary. That was the one that guy was with. Mary, not his wife. Mary, Martha, and Susie. And just started naming them off, and all of a sudden, they started dropping their rocks and walking away. He didn't change the law. He just got rid of them because they were not even walking the law that they wanted to use to put another person to death with. Sound like the church again. Because we've been great at sending people to hell, but we've been pretty weak at getting them to heaven. I grew up in this thing. I'm 63. My mom and dad got saved when I was a year old. I grew up in this thing called the church. Now, thank God y'all aren't having to go to church like we did. I mean, if you played softball, you was going to hell in my church. <laughs> you didn't even think about going to a movie house and the rapture come, you're going to hell. <laughs> if you play pool, you're going to hell. 
Oh, my God, if you touch the deck of cards, you demon-possessed. And then we won't know why nobody wanted to come to our church because they all played pool cards and went to the movie house. We had the law. We just didn't know how to walk in the freedom that it was supposed to bring. And so he comes in and he uses these scriptures to, to tell them that they've got to come and realize that you're hypocrites. You're not real. You're supposed to have truth that can bring life to the Gentiles that doesn't have the law. An example you're giving isn't pointing them to me. I'm going to say this. God's more interested in your motive than he is your message. Let me say that again. God's more interested in your motive than he is your message. Like, why do you post your pictures of TC having church packed out? I do every Sunday. I love to give God thanks and praise. But why, why do we post? Do we post those pictures so the people that attend the church that we left to come here can see what's happening here? Or do we post them so we can really give honor to God? Come on, somebody. Y'all still with me? But what's the motive behind the things that I do? Because that means more to God than what I'm doing. Is why am I doing it? What, what, what's the motive behind? And the motive behind the Jewish people was not to bring freedom to the Gentiles. It was to bring judgment and condemnation upon them using the very law that they themselves were not living. And I'm safe to say this. Anytime I've met a person of judgment, it was an immediate sign to me that they're walking in disobedience to the Word of God in their own personal life because people that are walking in freedom aren't looking to judge somebody else. It's people that are walking in their own bondage that have a need to bring bondage on someone else. Free people want everybody free. Bound people want everybody bound. Be careful who you're running with. And so then he goes on. Y'all with me still? Still love me? All right. I don't preach Sunday anyway, so it don't really matter. <laughs> You're coming to hear somebody else Sunday. So are y'all with me though? Yeah. All right. All right. So how many is going to make a decision tonight? We're not going to be that kind of church. Come on, somebody. All right. That's what, that's what is there. He's just wanting us to see it so we can see how ugly it is and go, that will never be us. I mean, our, our motive is just one more. Just one more. Whatever I have to do to get one more, that's what we're going to do at TC. I'm not looking for a reason to throw somebody out, judge somebody. We're looking for every way to reach them. So then let's go on to the next scriptures. And he says, Indeed, you have called a Jew, indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? 
You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Spiritual pride. Demanding again, I'm being repetitious, demanding again from others what one themselves was not practicing. Spiritual pride is, I was reading another author put it like this, spiritual pride is the most dangerous of all kinds of pride. A great evil of the sins, professors, is the dishonor done to God and religion by their not living according to their profession. Many despise their more ignorant neighbors who rest in a dead form of godlessness, yet themselves trust in a form of knowledge equally void of life and power, while some glory in the gospel whose unholy lives dishonored God and caused his name to be blasphemed. When we come and understand the, the truth and the power that's behind this, that, that the spiritual pride, the most dangerous of all prides, is when we begin to think that we've arrived somewhere. We've never arrived, folks. We never will on this earth. We're still in a journey. We're still in a process. And we've got to come and realize that, that God through this chapter in chapter 2 and it's repetitious, he's just doing, going at it at a different angle. He's showing the Jewish people who are religious people that your religion is nothing if you're not in relationship with Christ and imitating the person of Christ through every deed and action of your life, that you portray Christ in everything that you do. You're not looking at the faults of another person. You're not judging. Listen, what the Jewish people did is what many in their church do today is that they compared their spirituality against the Gentiles. And against the Gentiles, they, they had it. They had the law. But Jesus didn't ask me to compare myself to you or anybody else on this earth. I'm to compare myself to him. And to him, I got some work to do. And we can never fall into the trap that the Jews show us in Romans chapter 2. They were void. They, they had the word. They had the law. And yet... They had a form of knowledge, but they were void of life and power. They had nothing that produced life. They were void of life. They were void of power. They had the knowledge, but they were void of life and power. And today, can I say this to you? The world's not looking for somebody that can quote 200 scriptures. They're looking for somebody who's got a story to tell looking for your story. They're looking for your experience. They're looking for the hope that you can bring. I was painting a dentist's office, and they work with children only, and many of them are special needs. And I was sharing this with Kathy. I watched the lady get out, and she had a young boy, and it reminded me of Jabin to some degree. And they were walking in, and I stopped him in the parking lot and just said some words to him. And you know, and just kind of high-fived him, and he tried to high-five me, but it couldn't get it up there, and we worked it, you know, and, and uh, anyway, long story short, uh, she came over to me on the way out, and she said, thank you, thank you for talking to my son. She said, most won't, most don't, and I said, well, I got a story too. We started sharing stories. She hugged me and cried. We talked, and I prayed for her. And I'm saying that not to say 
that I did anything special. I'm saying the world out there is not looking to go, are you a pastor or not? Are you a Christian or not? Do you go to TC or not? They're not interested in how many scriptures you can sit down and let them know how much word you know. They just want to know, do you care about me? Do you care enough about me to sit down and tell me your story? Do you, do you, is this God real enough to you that you can stop what you're doing for a moment and just show a little bit of kindness to my son that everybody else ignores? Do you, do you, is this Jesus in you enough that you can hug me and, and let me know that it's going to be all right? I'm a single mom trying to raise a son with special needs and, and, and I'm tired and I'm wore out and, I, and, and today that hug was worth a million dollars and I'm I'm saying to you today, folks, we've got to slow down for a moment and realize today that the life that the world is looking so desperately for is not found in our religion. It's found in our relationship with a person called Jesus Christ. And when he becomes truly alive inside of us, my, my motto has been for 38 years that every day of my life there is a divine appointment that God has already set up on the calendars of heaven. Every day of my life I look for that appointment. She was my appointment today. Every day of my life I look. It may be in a gas line. It may be in a restaurant. It may be in a parking lot like today. But every day of my life, every day of your life, God has set up a divine appointment with somebody's son, somebody's granddaughter that they've been praying for for 15, 20 years that somebody would bring hope to them. Somebody would come across their path. And they're there, folks, if we're looking for them. This is more than having good church on Sunday morning. This is more than coming and having a great time together with our dream team party. Thank God for those experiences. But this is an everyday, all-day journey. We cannot get locked into the Jewish mindset that it's about religion. It's about privilege. It's about being a son of God, a daughter of God. That means nothing if you're not out sharing that relationship that you have with your heavenly father and letting the world see the life and the light of Christ alive inside of us. I'm yelling again. I'm sorry. God, help us help them find the peace and the grace and the life that God has given us. How many are so thankful you woke up this morning and you weren't where you used to be a few years ago, but you woke up with a mind that's at peace and a heart that's at rest and you've got purpose in your life and you're saved and, and you've been given a call and, and there's dreams and there's visions that's happening in your life because of a person called Jesus. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't become guilty as the Jewish people did. You see, we've got to be so careful. We've we got to come and understand what, what's our motive. Isn't it true? We oppose, watch this. We oppose sin, and at the same time, we're opposing Scripture while we oppose the sin. We're repeating the failure of the Jewish people toward the Gentiles. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? It's a couple of illustrations. I, I don't support certain lifestyles. I can't biblically support certain sexual lifestyles, but how I respond to people that are in them. I don't support abortion, but I'm not going to stand in front of an abortion clinic and scream at a young mother that's having to make some kind of a decision and call her all kind of dirty names, and I'm opposing the very scripture that I'm denouncing to her that she's violating. 
preacher's preaching. And we got to be careful in our relationship with Jesus that we don't step over into the religious side and start acting out of religion rather than a relationship in Christ because he told me, love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Turn the other cheek, seven times 70. That's a lot. He talks about those that divide the body, those that bring agitation, aggravation, separation. It's all in there. See, we were too busy preaching on smoking that the Bible don't say a thing about. Now, I ain't going to say smoking will take you to hell. It might get you to heaven quicker. But I can't. But I've heard whole sermons on it. And it ain't even in the Bible. We're just looking for a reason and a way to preach at somebody instead of tell somebody about the goodness of Jesus. And so we've got to come and watch ourselves that we don't step into that religious mode and find ourselves violating the very Scripture in a means to attack those that are violating the Scripture. We stay into that relationship with Jesus. Are you all with me? And then he closes the scripture, or this chapter, for circumcision, because the Jewish people in their culture, the circumcision was a very strong religious part, a ritual that they practiced. And so he says it was like kind of like a water baptism, it says it was an outward sign. Okay, so when they circumcised the child publicly, it was an outward sign of the flesh being removed, okay? And so, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. Now, we can dunk you in a tank, but if you leave here on Sunday and go back to your lifestyle on Monday, it didn't mean anything. Are you with me? This is what he's saying here. Your circumcision is profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law... Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Now, God's messing with us right there. Now, you got to do a Pastor Brad and read it in between the lines. He's saying, you're circumcised, but if you're not going to obey the law... It's equal to being uncircumcised. It's like it didn't happen, means nothing. But if an uncircumcised man lives according to the law, even if he didn't have the law, because the Gentiles, the Bible said earlier, that they live by their conscience, and the Jews were judging them because they did not obey the law, quote unquote, but they were living a better moral life than the Jews were that had the law. God said, they're living better than you are. You have the law. They don't have the law, but they have a moral conscience. And their moral conscience alone kept them living closer to the truth of the law than the Jews were living, and they had the entire law. Now he comes in and says, circumcision, but you're not walking in the law, so now you're equally to being uncircumcised, so I don't even regarded as being done. But the uncircumcised man, 
that's living moral according to his conscience, I see him as circumcised. Now, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised. Because there's not going to be some folks there that we thought was going to be flying in with colors. They're going to have the big house. They ain't even going. And there's going to be some people with some massive mansions that you and I didn't think going to get there. Because we're basing our judgment on how we perceive the law when God's basing his judgment out of the heart of a righteous God that knows the heart, what you and I can't see. Y'all still with me? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor of circumcision, that which is outward of the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. God said, I honor the ordinance, but I'm more interested in, have you had the circumcision of the heart? So you're judging them because they've not had circumcision of the flesh while you're not living like you've had circumcision of the heart. What has this done? What has this kind of teaching done? What did it do in those days? It created a church that had little law, had little boundary. We saw so much sin come into the church in the, old, in the, in the Bible days. So we, that's why Paul had to continually in Corinthians, correct, 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 because it was when you have people in the church that are pronouncing the law but not living by the law, we open the door for so many things to happen. And over time, it has created Christians who live a life of dysfunction. We come to church, man. We know how to make it up, dress it up, fix it up, smile through it. For that hour and a half, we can make it. Got this under control. And then Monday hits and we're back struggling. I can just hang on till Sunday gets here. Get my fix. I'll make it to next Sunday again. What we've found ourselves is we've got a lot of broken people. I being one of them, you being one of them, that we've learned how to function in our dysfunction. When Jabin died, it challenged everything that I've ever believed. Jabin's my grandson, if you're new. He passed away four years ago in May. That was my buddy, man, my only grandson, my hunting buddy, supposed to be my hunting buddy. When he was born, I had him as four-wheeler, his rifle, his camo, his boots. He's going hunting whether he wanted to or not. He was my buddy. I've never prayed so hard in my life. We watched God bring a miracle with our son, Tommy, who was pronounced uh, dead for 24 days, 100% brain dead. 
He's here tonight. God gave him back to us in a phenomenal miracle. We prayed with the same faith 10 times longer because we didn't have time to think with Tommy. He was dead. God gave him back. But with Jabin, it was a process. I would stay up some nights. I slept with him in my bed holding him, praying all night long. Asking God for that miracle. And I believed that God was going to heal my grandson. I truly believed that God was going to give him back to us well and whole. And he didn't. He took him. I was dealing not only with the loss of a grandson, I was dealing now with a son that lost his son. And as a father, I felt like a failure because it was the first time in my life that I was in a position that I I was out of control. I, I couldn't fix it. Couldn't stop it. So I'm dealing with the loss of a grandson, and and my theology got challenged so bad because I couldn't put one and one together and get two. I've given 38 years of my life to full-time ministry, and you take my grandson? I went into chronic depression without knowing it. I couldn't read a Bible or pray for six months. I, I tried, and it didn't work, so I just quit. This is a guy that's pastored for 38 years, preached all over the nation for 38 years, and now I don't even know how to read the Bible. I was on a hunting trip, and Pastor Scott Thomas, our friend who's preached here, was with me, and he set me down by a tree, and he said, you and I got to talk. I said, okay. He said, Dan, you're in depression. You don't know it. And I said, I'm not depressed, Scott. I'm sad. He goes, no, you're in depression because he worked in mental health for years. He said, I'm going to pay for you to go see a counselor, but I don't want you to see a religious counselor because they're going to throw scripture at you and you're mad at God, so that ain't going to do nothing. He said, you need somebody that's going to help you walk this journey through life and how to put your left foot in front of your right foot and walk. I said, I don't need that. I'm just sad. You need it. Long story short, they set me up. I started seeing a counselor in Daphne that I still see today. Never thought I would be in that place. I've always been the counselor. Now I'm the counselee. They they put me in a test. And when they did that test, depression comes in three stages, mild, moderate, major. I was at the highest level of moderate depression you can be without being in major chronic depression. 92% of the people that was at my level of depression had already taken their life or they were in a program heavily medicated. And the counselor looked at me, who was a Christian lady. Her husband used to pastor a church over 3,000 in Tulsa. She understood church life. She understood Christianity. She looked at me, and these were her words. You are a functioning alcoholic, and depression is your alcohol. You have learned how to cope. You've learned how to function. Your faith in your family has kept you alive. But you are one broken, empty, miserable man. And she was right. And it's been a journey. It's been a four-year journey of walking, getting healed. Feels great to be free. But I'm sharing that story with you tonight because I'm not the only one in this house that needs that freedom. Many of you have gone through all kind of things in your life and you've learned how to come to church, and you've learned how to put on the facade, but inside, it ain't right, it ain't well. 
It hurts. The insecurities, we hide them behind our gifts. We come and we can play a horn or we can play a drum or we can play a keyboard and we can do our thing and everybody thinks we're so put together and we go home and we leave Sunday morning and we're that same wreck from Monday till Saturday until we can get back and get behind our gift again and we, we hide it. We've learned how to put on the facade. We've learned how to go to work and build our business and yet we're empty. Something happened when we were 5, 10, 12, 15 and it still owns us. God just really spoke to me Wednesday that tonight he wants to have an encounter with you for a moment. We're not going to get locked into religion. That's what God was warning us against in Romans 2. I feel like it just fits so well with what God wants to do tonight because religion will keep you in your bondage until you die. Here's what it did for me. I've grown up in church. I've known God as my provider. I've watched him provide in miraculous ways. I've known him as my savior. I've known him as my healer. I had curvature of the spine when I was 15. They were going to have to do massive surgery on me. Said I'd have to learn how to eat, walk all over again like a newborn. And my mom laid her hand on my left leg in that doctor's office and prayed the most simplest prayer. My left leg was an inch shorter than my right leg. My spine was severely crooked. She prayed the simplest prayer and asked the doctor for some more x-rays. He said, we don't need any more. And she said, I do. And they took three more x-rays, and when they put them in the machine, my spine was straight, and both my legs were the same length. I don't need a sermon on healing. I know the healer. I've known him as my savior, my provider, my healer. But as a 12-year-old boy, I, many of you know, I went through a horrible experience. I was kidnapped. I was tortured. I was hurt. And that owned me, and I became very angry all my life until 38. I didn't tell anybody from 12 to 38 it owned me. It owned every emotion that I had, how I saw myself, everything. I'm preaching across the nation, and then I'm going back. I'm watching God fill the altars, preaching in front of five, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people all across the nation. And then I'd go back to a hotel room and cry myself to sleep saying, God, you healed hundreds tonight. When are you going to heal me? When's my turn? Okay, you're using me to help them, but how about me? And through the depth of my pain, because I said nobody will ever get close enough to hurt me again. Anybody been there? Not even God can get that close because I'm not going to get hurt like that again. And at the lowest point of my life, I got so desperate, I'll never forget, I walked out on the back porch of my house. And I literally fell down to my knees on the concrete. And I cried out to God. And I said, will you let me know you as my father? And that night I felt an embrace of the Holy Spirit that I can't explain to you. And I began to walk a brand new journey with God. You don't know him until you know him as your father. Provider's great, healer's wonderful, savior, yes. But when you get to know him as your father, it changes everything about your relationship with him. Because fathers do what they need to do for their children. And I just want to do this tonight, and I know our time is gone. I just want you to stand.
If you're here tonight and you'd go, Pastor Dan, got the word tonight, little nugget, nothing fancy. But I, I don't want this religion thing, man. I, I, I want to know my father and there's some stuff that's happened in my life that I don't talk about. There's some things that, that I know that I haven't been healed from. There's some things that I know the enemy still has a thumbprint in my life, and, and I just want to let it go. I want an encounter with God, and I want to release. And if that's you, I, I've bared my soul with you tonight. If that's you, they're going to just play a little song back there. Would, would you have the courage to just walk up here? I'm not going to ask you why or why. I just want to pray. If you say, this, this is for me tonight, I'm, I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of the pain. I'm just tired of the struggle. I'm tired of trying to feel like i got to put on this facade. I just want to get well. I just want to be healed. It takes courage. Anybody else want to join us real quick? I want you to do this right now. Would you just lift your hands to him? And I want you just to let him right now just say, God, in your own words, Father, I, I just, tonight, I just want you to embrace me, Father. I, I need you tonight. I am so tired. I'm so tired of this thing owning me, God. I'm so tired of fighting this thing over and over and over. Can I get some believers tonight to just come and stand behind these that are here and just reach up and just put a hand of contact on a shoulder somewhere? And I want you that are here, just, just open your heart to him right now. He just wants to have an encounter with you for a moment. Just ask him right now, God, just open my heart and let me receive from you tonight. Let me receive from you tonight, Lord God. Just let the breath of your Holy Spirit breathe into my spirit tonight, God. Let your love embrace me tonight, Father. Let your love, God, embrace my heart. Let your healing come, Jesus. Let your healing come, Father. Do it now. Do it, Lord. Breathe, Holy Spirit. Breathe, Holy Spirit. Breathe, Holy Spirit, into our hearts tonight, Jesus. Bring healing, bring healing, Father. You said you sent your word and you healed them. Father, I'm asking you to release the word of God into these hearts tonight, God. Release your word tonight, Father. God, we speak against every lie, every diabolical plan of the enemy, every scheme, Lord, that he has set forth, every wound of the past, every offense, God, every hurt. Father, we pray right now, God, let there be a release. Let there be a release tonight, God. Let there be freedom tonight in our hearts and in our minds tonight, Jesus. No longer will we be enslaved, God. No longer will we be tormented. But God, we declare freedom tonight. Freedom tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, we declare it, God. We declare it, Father. We declare it, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Lord, let your word perform what you sent it to do tonight, Father.
Let your word perform, God, in these hearts tonight, Jesus. Do it, Lord. Do it, Father. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, you're healing, God. You're healing, Lord. Let your anointing come, Lord, that destroys every yoke, every burden, every weight, every stronghold. God, let your anointing come, Father. Release us and free us, God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name.